Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco Radio. This week, we head to Sao Paulo to explore the city's vibrant art scene. We have the dictator military yep. since 64, and that has an immense impact in the artists during this time. Plus, we speak with English chef Tom Carriage. We operate like a two-star restaurant. It's just a pub. It's just the walls that are different. That's all. And you just go, actually, and with that, you still have to have that warmth of connection. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a highlight from the Foreign Desk Explainer. Expat Eritreans around the world have been protesting against Eritrean cultural festivals held in their cities. Andrew Muller explains why the events links to the country's incumbent president have incensed those who have left their homeland. Grand scheme of things, it was not an especially noteworthy dust-up. Couple of hundred arrests, couple of dozen injuries, obviously not good, but riots, at least as spectacular, occur reasonably regularly in Europe, more or less routinely in France. However, this past weekend's Stausch in Stuttgart between two factions of Eritreans and the Baden-Württemberg police standing in between them does serve as a cue for a closer look at why Eritreans are so annoyed with each other and what the deal is with Eritrea generally. It is all remarkably weird. The event which descended into mayhem in Stuttgart last Saturday was an Eritrean cultural festival. This is, in itself, obviously no problem at all, the kind of thing staged in cities all over the world by immigrant communities, greatly to the enhancement of the general vibes. However, this specific Eritrean cultural festival was organised by people who are big fans of Eritrea's president, Isaias Afwerki. And this is really not all that far from the prospect of a Korean cultural festival being thrown in a European city by people who are big fans of Kim Jong-un. Oh no. At which point, an amount of backstory. Eritrea struggled long, hard and indisputably heroically to become a sovereign state. It was an Italian colony from 1890 to 1941, a British protectorate from 1941 to 1952, a theoretically autonomous component of Ethiopia from 1952 to 1962, and a reluctant province of Ethiopia from 1962 until independence in 1993. Throughout those decades, Eritrean liberation movements fought wars of varying intensity against whoever was lording it over them at the time. In 1971, a younger and more excitable faction of the Eritrean Liberation Front formed the Eritrean People's Liberation Front. Are you the Judean People's Front? And let's just take the Monty Python references as read or we'll be here all day. Among the EPLF's founding leaders was a 20-something university dropout named Isaias Afwerki. Afwerki and the EPLF eventually got what they wanted, a sovereign Eritrea under EPLF control in 1993. 
The price paid by Eritrea's people was hideous. The 17-year war between Ethiopia and Eritrean rebels killed tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands if one factors in the associated famines. And that wasn't an end to it. Eritrea and Ethiopia went at it again in the late 1990s. Eritrea acknowledged the loss of 19,000 soldiers, the total toll including civilians likely much, much higher. This is a gravely scarred country which has sacrificed much. Consider those numbers and consider that Eritrea's population is only a squeak over three and a half million. Regrettably, Afwerki, who is now 77 and has been president since he was 47, has doggedly plodded the wretchedly well-worn path from dashing guerrilla liberator to dismal overstaying tyrant. It seems a lot longer than 30 years ago that Afwerki was being praised by US President Bill Clinton as a renaissance leader and giving splendid speeches denouncing many of his fellow African heads of state as a sack of complacent self-interested crooks who lingered in office far too long and were interested only in constructing cults of personality in their own honour. Afwaki's Eritrea has never held an election, has no independent media or judiciary, and nothing resembling a functioning civil society. It does very much have a military in which all Eritreans must serve, often indefinitely, under conditions of extreme brutality in the barracks and frequent danger on the front lines. In the 1990s, Eritrea fought wars against Sudan and Yemen, this century, Eritrea has fought one small war with Djibouti, and this decade has sent troops back into Ethiopia, this time broadly on Ethiopia's side against their common enemies, the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Reports late last year suggested that Eritrea was calling up reservists well into their 50s. Unsurprisingly, hundreds of thousands of Eritreans have left Eritrea, though few Eritreans are legally permitted to do so. Understandably, many of those who have found a way out are other than delighted at seeing the thoughts, deeds and works of President Afwerki praised and saluted in their places of refuge. Hence this past weekend's fracas in Stuttgart. And hence, interestingly, similar recent stromashes in Toronto, Stockholm, Bergen, Giessen and Tel Aviv, among other destinations, as celebrations of the 30th anniversary of Eritrea's independence have prompted anger from Eritreans who struggle to see what there is to celebrate. The clashes in Tel Aviv were especially serious, Israeli police resorting to tear gas, stun grenades, baton rounds and live ammunition. Authorities in all locations blighted by these brawls have irritably declared, rightly and reasonably, that they are not much keen on hosting imported conflicts and that other means of expressing one's views are available. There are suspicions, however, that these disturbances may have been anticipated, even desired, in at least one quarter. That the Afwerki regime encourages cultural festivals abroad not just as a means of raising foreign currency and imposing itself upon those who have fled it, but as a provocation intended to cause trouble and make other countries wary of Eritrean refugees who have fled Afwerki's country-sized prison farm. Willfully stoking violence among one's own diaspora does seem like a bizarre thing for a given government to do, but so does a great deal else of what Eritrea's government has most definitely done. 
For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And now a highlight from The Globalist. There is little if any relief on the front line, but in Ukraine, soldiers are being given a rare and wonderful treat. An Estonian filmmaker has embraced the long military tradition of saunas as a means of relaxation and is taking mobile saunas to weary Ukrainian fighters. The mastermind behind this project is Ilmar Rak, an Estonian filmmaker and humanitarian worker who spoke to Emma Nelson this week on The Globalist. All it started exactly a year ago. I was in Ukraine as uh, for a hum- humanitarian mission, and then one uh, battalion commander said to me that you have brought us uh, cars, you have brought us drones, but the winter is coming and we need a sauna. And in the beginning, I, w- I was thinking that it's, it's a joke. But then, uh, then I understood that it wasn't, because they, there's at least three things that are important. The first is just an hygiene. If we remember the trenches of the First World War, then uh, the number of soldiers who died because of different diseases was almost as high as uh, all the enemy artillery. And uh, it's, uh, it's the same in, in Ukraine. If you are catching just a simple cold, then you are out of the fight uh, without any enemy uh, bullets and uh, a bullet and um, the second thing that was surprising was the this moral or motivation part because they some soldiers told me that they haven't been washing uh, for uh, an entire month and I was uh, once as a uh, doing a, a shooting a documentary film I was uh, with them on the, the front line, and I saw that they, they didn't uh, take their boots off for a week. Uh, well, it may seem as a kind of necessity for them, the tactical necessity, but it affects their uh, moral. And uh, they are very groomy very often. Ilma, may I ask the practicalities of how do you actually build a sauna on the front line of a battle? Well, uh, we are building the sauna the, in Estonia, and then it's uh, it has to be a mobile sauna, and then we uh, there's the sauna in the container is on the track, and we are driving there where they need it. And just explain to us, I mean, when you first went to who the Ukrainian military and said, "I've got this idea," what was the reaction? Did people take you seriously? Well, the. Uh, <laughs> In Estonia, they took me absolutely seriously because the Estonians and Finns, they, they understand the, the sauna tradition. Estonians, whenever they are deployed to the military mission to Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Africa, they have always uh, built saunas. So they, for them, it was immediately understandable. Yes, oh, of course, we can do that. We, we cannot provide uh, Ukraine many more tanks or, I don't know, the, the big missiles, because Estonia is a small country, we, we don't produce the, those things, but we can provide saunas. Tell us a little bit about when you drove your first sauna to the front line and you fired it up and then you went to the, the soldiers and said, put your weapons down, I've got a treat for you. What was their reaction? <laughs> um, there were uh, those people who haven't been in the sauna before, and it was a kind of surprise for them. 
there were uh, we as uh, we call it actually a sauna complex because there is a laundry machines and drying machines uh, and showers too. It's not just this heating room. And some soldiers just went under the uh, the hot shower for um, half an hour, for example. For example, and then uh, only later the other soldiers uh, said, "No, no, no! There is this uh, very hot room, and you need to go there, and it will give you something special." And then there was a funny story about the Bahmut. Probably you have heard the the name of that city in the news. So the uh, a neighboring uh, battalion commander came to the battalion commander who had the sauna and asked, what are you feeding your soldiers that they are so happy in the morning? Are you giving them some kind of drugs? And the, our battalion commander said, no, 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 we have the sauna. And now on Food Neighborhoods This Week, Monaco Radio's head of production, San Impi, takes a trip to Grand Central Market in Los Angeles. She meets his creative director, Erin Mavian, who shows her around and gives us a glimpse of what the market has to offer. Uh, so we'll get a double cheeseburger with bacon, lettuce, tomatoes and jalapenos. And, uh, we'll also get the, the loaded fries. And can I get fry sauce? Hi there, welcome to Grand Central Market. My name is Erin Mavian and I am the creative director for GCM. Grand Central Market is actually one of the oldest, longest running businesses in Los Angeles. It's been open for 105 years. The market was originally a destination for some of the wealthiest people in Los Angeles around the turn of the century. They would live at the top of Bunker Hill take Angel's Flight down to Grand Central Market and buy their produce and provisions and dry goods. Over time, naturally, the market has definitely evolved. Uh, today, it resembles more of a food hall because we don't have as many vendors that are selling produce or a butcher like we used to. But the history really does reflect a lot of downtown Los Angeles. So very high highs and some low lows but regardless you know, the market has always been here and people have been coming regularly since it opened in 1917. We have a handful of legacy vendors. The oldest vendor that we have currently is called Roast to Go. They opened in 1952 so they are now 71 years old. They have the same menu today that they did when they opened. It's traditional Mexican food. You can get tongue and cheek and really any part of a cow made in lots of different ways. So tortas or burritos or tacos. Uh, is that right here to go? Uh, My name is Chris Dane. I am the owner and chef operator of Lucky Bird in Grand Central Market. We came in in the late part of 2018, so almost our five-year anniversary coming up. We do fried chicken here. We specialize in kind of your down-home, very kind of simplistic kind of fried chicken, taking really good ingredients and just making them kind of shine. So, 
So this is uh, you know, an institution when it comes to Los Angeles. The building itself is over 100 years old. The market itself is over 100 years old. I used to come here as a child, so being given the opportunity to have a space to create the food that I want to create in the market was kind of a no-brainer for me. So you know, I kind of jumped at the opportunity when it arose, and we've been kind of hitting the ground running and off to a really strong start, so it's been good. I think our best sellers are probably our sandwiches, but we do have pressure fryers back here, which is something a little bit unique when it comes to fried chicken. So we do specialize in bone-in chicken as well. You really can't go wrong with the menu. We kept it small because we want to make sure that everything we serve is uh, the utmost quality and utterly delicious. So you really can't go wrong. You can get bone-in chicken, chicken and waffles, chicken sandwiches, or biscuits are great. So take a stab in the dark, and I think you can do pretty well. We've always felt that the market really represents Los Angeles and all the different people and cultures. So when it comes time to either replace a vendor or we find a space that we can carve out to create another space to have a vendor, typically we're looking for someone who has an amazing story, ties or connection to Los Angeles. They are passionate about what they do we also try to limit the concept so there isn't a lot of overlap. Granted, we have a lot of tacos, but that's normal because it is Los Angeles. And we look for people that really know that this is a special place. It's unlike a typical restaurant. It's unlike a food court. There are a lot of obstacles and elements that come with operating a restaurant here so we do look for people who have that grit and understanding and ultimately are, are excited and have something delicious that they want to cook and, and feed to people of LA and other places that visit. This is La Huerta Candy. I'm working here for almost 22 years. My name is Ivan Carmona. My cousin owned the business in 1999 I think and he offered me a job here. So that's why I started working here in 2001. Change a lot, good for the vendors to stay here because a lot of people come in again in, uh, to the Grand Central Market. So now it's a lot of people from other countries come to see what's going on in the Central Market and try everything we have inside the market. Before the change, it's more like uh, Latin people come to buy a groceries, produce for home. Now it's more a tourist. A lot of people from a lot of countries come inside the market. That's good for us. A lot of people talk about food halls and food courts and what's trendy and cool and bringing in new concepts and hipster this and hipster that. And, you know, what makes Grand Central Market so unique is that it's one of the few places in Los Angeles where you can go and see every demographic represented, every age, every shape, every color, every size. And there's nothing we love more than seeing someone come with their children or their grandchildren and sharing a story of when they were young and their grandparents or parents brought them here. So it's multi-generational too. My name's Nicole Rucker and I'm the founder of Fat and Flower Bakery. Fat and Flower is a cookie and pie shop. It's named Fat and Flower because that's the basis of everything that we make. Right now, our biggest sellers happen to be the 
bourbon chocolate pecan cookie, which is a vegan cookie, surprisingly. It's very popular. And then we're really known for pie. Specifically, key lime pie is the top seller always, but we have seasonal fruit pies as well that garner a lot of praise. Grand Central Market approached me several years ago to open something here, and I wasn't ready at that point. So when it came time for me to open something smaller that I could do you know, with my own money, I went back to them and asked if they had spaces available, and they said yes. So it just seemed like a good fit for a person who I had done larger projects with more money and investors, and that didn't work out very well. So I wanted to do something that was more manageable and entry level, and Grand Central Market was the place that could support that. So I'm not supposed to play favorites, but for Monocle I can. One of my current favorites is Sorry Sorry, Filipino and rice bowls. And the owner, she actually has a background in fine dining and pastries, but she's from the Philippines. So she was inspired to open her own location here. Another vendor that I love is La Tostaderia. They have a great story. The owner is actually from Mexico, studied at Cordon Bleu, and stayed in the United States, went on to open La Tostaderia, so they specialize in seafood. They have great ceviche and fish tacos and shrimp tacos, which we love. And then my third would be the Donut Man, which is as you know, donuts, but they too have an incredible story. One location for over 50 years, and they would never open another one unless it was at Grand Central Market. So when we called, they answered, and they're here today. Now the United Kingdom's King Charles III and Queen Camilla have arrived in France this week. The rescheduled tour is a historically poignant moment. The king will become the first British royal to address the National Assembly from the French Senate, with his speech expected to include sections in French. Following the bitter Brexit years, which saw the UK shun its bewildered European neighbours, the king is hoping to celebrate the shared history's cultures and values of France and Britain. Well, Monaco's Isabella Jewell has been diving into the history of the Franco-British relationship, which has not always been so cosy. A three-day visit fit for, well, a king. King Charles III and his wife, Queen Camilla, have crossed the channel for their long-awaited state visit to France. They'll be hosted by French political royalty, President Emmanuel Macron and his wife Brigitte, in the glorious palace of Versailles. The British monarch had hoped to make France his first foreign visit back in March, but a minor people's uprising derailed his plans. Yeah, that doesn't tend to end well for the blue-blooded among us. The irony of a royal visit to the palace won't be lost on history buffs. Versailles was France's royal residence from the 1600s, under King Louis XIV, until the start of the French Revolution in 1789. This turbulent period saw Versailles evacuated, ransacked, and King Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette face the guillotine. With the palace now firmly in the hands of the Republic, it is often used to represent the prowess of the French state. 
Here's historian, author and royal commentator Carolyn Harris. The palace has been in many ways transformed from a symbol of the French monarchy to a symbol of French culture and the French state. And so Versailles is, is certainly a very important historical setting, but it's also an opportunity to showcase French culture into the modern day. And we know King Charles III is very interested in heritage and preserving heritage buildings. There's probably going to be a great deal of interest for him as well seeing how Versailles has been preserved and how it's both a museum and a place that remains very active as a setting for state visits and important occasions in 21st century France. A small snapshot there of a rather friendly relationship between British monarchs and France. But you'd be wrong to assume that the relationship between Britain and France has always been banquets and tea parties. Here's Sarah Griswood, royal historian and author of Elizabeth, the Queen and Crown, with a potted history of the last 1,000 years. Things have been very far from warm and cosy consistently over the centuries, but it is a real model, starting right back, of course, with the conquest. 1066, William of Normandy conquering England. Now, if that famous Battle of Hastings had gone the other way, England would probably have wound up allied with the Scandinavian countries. Instead, it wound up looking south to Europe. But the Normans conquered the Anglo-Saxon lands, and even though they were only less than 1% of the population, imposed their culture, their way of doing things. For centuries, a kind of model went on, whereby, weirdly, the King of England could be someone who hardly spoke English, but could own more land in what we now think of as France than the nominal King of France did. But that all came crashing down in the middle of the 14th century, around 250 years after the Norman Conquest, when the King of England, Edward III, tried to claim the French throne. Here's Sarah Griswood again. The French, new French king, uh, retaliated by trying to confiscate most of the lands that the, the, the English king owned in France. That kicked off what was known as the Hundred Years' War. And since then, English and French relations have been, let's say, tetchy in an almost familial way. Very close, that tiny distance across the Channel, but sometimes close, more often quite hostile. France went back and forth between royal rule, emperors and republics for about a century. And in this time of turbulence, French royals sought refuge in the UK, hosted by the British royal family. France's penultimate royal, the so-called Citizen King, developed a close relationship with Queen Victoria. It's a story brought to life by historian and author of Rasputin's Killer and His Romanov Princess, Corinne Hall. When Louis-Philippe was himself exiled and forced from the throne in 1848, Queen Victoria offered him a temporary home at Claremont near Isher in Surrey. I said temporary, but they actually stayed there for 18 years. And she promoted Louis-Philippe and his family as relatives, friends, members of an honoured royal family, and they often appeared in the court circular. And Louis-Philippe died in 1850. She continued her friendship with his family. 
1871 they were allowed to return to France and they continued to exchange letters and Christmas cards and all that sort of thing for the rest of Victoria's life. So while presidents battled emperors back in France, the Franco-British royal relationship was brought to the English countryside. And here, the illustration of the familial relationship between the UK monarchs and France, sometimes side by side, other times at each other's throats. Sarah Gristwood again. I think English monarchs from centuries ago would actually have been quite at home with the idea of an English monarch having a you know banquet at Versailles or addressing the you know French politicians with the proviso that they would probably have thought that a couple of years down the line, everyone could be on a battlefield again. And while France and the UK have put down their muskets, the battle lines now tend to be more political in nature. Carolyn Harris. British Prime Minister uh, Liz Truss, when she was briefly in power, said that the jury was still out about whether Macron was a friend or a foe. But we see uh, current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has uh, emphasized having a strong relationship with France. So there being a state visit of this kind indicates that Britain and France are, uh, are forming a rapport in the aftermath of Brexit. From Monocle, I'm Isabella Jewell. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, and I'll have two highlights from Monocon Culture this week. The first one, in the Californian city of Fremont, it plays host to one of the largest African communities in the U.S. A new film takes its title from the name of the city and follows a young woman, Donia, played by real-life African refugee Anaita Vali Zada. Fremont follows Donia as she struggles with insomnia and tries to reconcile her past life as an interpreter in Afghanistan with her present world, working in a handmade fortune cookie factory. The film is hazy and pensive and shot in black and white, and it also features the bear superstar Jeremy Allen White. Monocon culture producer Sophie Monhankums caught up with Fremont's director Babak Jalali to find out more. Where are you from? I'm from Afghanistan. I've never met an Afghan before. You seem like a friendly people. We are. I'm just not a good example. Fremont is this beautiful film that follows an Afghan refugee in America in Fremont. And the film has a very particular look and style. It's all shot in black and white for those people who haven't seen it. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about how you um, kind of got to that style and created the, the sort of very particular mood that the film embodies. Well, the decision to shoot it in black and white and in, in that kind of ratio, in that aspect ratio, was taken quite late on. When me and uh, Carolina Cavalli, the co-writer, were writing the script, I imagined it in color. But just before pre-production, I don't know, I just had a sudden urge in my stomach um, that this film should be in black and white. 
I don't have a real eloquent or intellectual reason. I just, it was something very, uh, I just suddenly felt very strongly about it. And it had to do with the tone that we wanted to create and based on the locations that we had in mind. And the tone, you know, it's a mixture of, let's say, melancholy and humor. And um, telling a story about a displaced person. Often films and cinema tend to show those experiences through the realm of, I don't know, social realism. And I wanted to get away from that because I just didn't want a situation where the audience are pitying the character. I wanted them to be, the character to be more relatable. And hence I thought this kind of tone and this style would be beneficial to that. It works so well. And I wanted to pick up in particular there, you talked about the kind of melancholy and humour and maybe you could talk a little bit more about the humor within the film it's very particular but it is very it is very present and it's it's often quite surprising um but there are some very funny bits the humor was always important in the film because um from the writing process because i mean kind of related to the my first answer it it, it just she finds the character and everyone else in the film for that matter find themselves in these sort of absurd situations, particularly the lead character, Donya, who's the Af- young Afghan woman who's been resettled in America. The whole experience of displacement in many ways is quite absurd. And um, f- focusing on this character who has this determination to navigate this uh, craziness, I don't know, I just felt with, with having that bit of um, humor, <laughs> it would just be possible to humanize her more and have people make a connection to her, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. And maybe kind of picking up on that sort of absurdist element, one of the fantastic things about this film is Sidonia's job is working in a fortune cookie factory and it seems so kind of perfect for a lot of the themes and the kind of underlying messages of the film. And I wonder when you kind of landed on that as one of the the settings and what it was about the kind of fortune cookie and working in a fortune cookie factory that you wanted to kind of explore and really get into. I don't know how long ago it was, a while ago, several years ago, me and Carolina went to San Francisco and the original producer of the film, Marjana Morimi, took us to a fortune cookie factory in Chinatown. And me, um, I was just struck by the visuals, I mean, the aesthetics of the place. They were still making these cookies in machines that had been around for generations. And I just thought, oh, it would look ama- this would look amazing on film. I had no idea how we would incorporate it into the story. It was Carolina's idea that Donia uh, should work in the fortune cookie factory because, you know, Carolina said... Um, the film is essentially what we're writing is about the idea of possibilities. And basically, uh, fortune cookies tend to do that. You know, they never give you um, sort of a grand um, predictions. It's more about alluding to the possibility of possibilities. And we and Karenia said, you know, if Donia starts working, then she's entrusted with, uh, given the responsibility of also, besides her own pursuit of um let's say, possibilities, uh, she could be entrusted with also alluding to other people's ones as well. Yeah, so she becomes the person who's writing the fortunes that go into the cookies, which is just a kind of, yeah, a lovely idea that there is someone sat there who was thinking up all of these little sayings to put in them. And I guess one of the things that there is really important is language and how you use language and how you can kind of, yeah, write 
about hope and possibility and, and the future. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about working with the actor who plays Donya, who herself was was a uh, broadcast journalist, I believe, in Afghanistan before coming to the US. And, and I heard that she'd had to kind of pick up her language skills, uh, English language skills, very quickly to play the part. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the, the casting process and also what it was like to work with her. I got to Oakland, uh, next to San Francisco, which is where I was based during the shooting of this film. For the casting, you know, we did an open casting call through social media and also Afghan community centers in America saying we're looking for a young Afghan woman to play the lead role in a feature film. No prior acting experience necessary. On my previous three films, I predominantly worked with non-professionals, so I wasn't worried about that. But what was worrying is, was that we weren't finding the correct person. So the people who replied to us were second generation Afghans scattered around America. And uh, they just, I just didn't feel they could connect with the character. And then suddenly, uh, after a while, uh, Anaita Walizada, who ended up getting the role of Donya, wrote me an email saying, Hello, I'm Anaita. I'm uh, 21. I just arrived five months ago in America, in Maryland, near Washington, D.C., I left Afghanistan when the Taliban returned five months ago on one of those evacuation flights, left most of my family there. I've never acted before, and my English is not great, but I'm interested. So I responded, and we set up a video call. And from the moment I saw her, um, I knew that she was perf- she would be perfect because of the way she presented herself and because of her own personal story. Okay, she was not a former translator, but uh, she had, you know, at this young age, been, had to escape Afghanistan in quite horrific conditions and, and was starting her life from scratch, essentially, in America. So uh, we thought she could bring her, I mean, her own personal story was not so different. And yeah, so without having seen her physically, um, we cast her and she flew to the West Coast. And um, she was so determined and she was so, um, how should I say, because of course it's completely nerve-wracking uh, to do this. She's in almost every frame of the film and she had never experienced this and it wasn't in her own language. But um, she was just so determined and her English, uh, she was working on it all the time. And yeah, so I think um, that's, how, yeah, that's how it came about, basically. And it's such a, a stunning performance. Babak, thank you so much for, for speaking with me about Fremont. Thank you. And the other highlight of Monaco on culture comes from Brazil. In the years preceding last year's election, Brazil, under right-wing leader and former military man Jair Bolsonaro, underwent something of a cultural ice age. Actively pursuing anti-culture measures, disbanding the culture ministry, was just the tip of an iceberg that made for a depressing environment for many in Brazil's art community. With Bolsonaro and his brand of culture war gone for now, and President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva sworn in at the beginning of the year, what is the mood on the ground in Brazil's contemporary art and financial capital, São Paulo? Monaco's David Pleasant was there and sent us this report. Opened in 1951, the Biennale de São Paulo is no ordinary biannual art jamboree. Held in an enormous purpose-built pavilion designed by the great Brazilian modernist architect Oscar Niemeyer, it is the second oldest such event in the world after Venice. On opening week, this enormous metropolis is teeming with a palpable artistic buzz. 
artists, gallerists, curators and collectors from the city, Brazil and all over the world gathered and the anticipation was particularly acute after the previous scaled back 2021 rendition which took place during the double whammy doom and gloom of the pandemic and the government of Jair Bolsonaro. Alongside the Biennale are Sao Paulo's teeming commercial galleries that play a crucial role in this cultural moment. They too are shedding light on both the enormous wealth of Brazil's artistic diversity and the darker chapters of the country's recent history. I'm Marcelo Palota from Mapa Gallery, Sao Paulo, Brazil. We have this gallery for eight years now. Uh, working between the 50s and the 80s, as we call the Brazilian modernism period. So that's the, the, the period that you define as the most important in terms of your work as a gallerist? Yes, yes, especially in Brazil because we have the dictator military yep. since 64. And that has a, a, a immense impact in the artists during this time, especially because they not are very allowed to, to show anything. So there was censorship and political exact, repression. Lots of that. Marcelo Palotta there on his Sao Paulo-based gallery Mapas efforts to rescue Brazilian modernist artists, mainly painters, from obscurity. Those were the sounds of artists Ayrson Heraclito and Tigana Santana's installation titled Ago, The Blessing, on show at the Sao Paulo Biennale. Another gallery reframing the way we look at Brazilian art, but this time in a completely contemporary context, is Galeria Milan. I went to their cavernous space in the city's Pinheiros neighbourhood and met Director-General Henna Lee. I think our history has been very hegemonic in a way and very embedded or very like with a vision of a very Western art history mm. with the influence, of course, of Europe or the US and etc. So Brazil has been following that history and... Uh, I think the past years there has been like revisionism in art history. So I prefer like instead of using the word of reparation, more of revisionism, because reparation I feel that in this is personal opinion, you put the indigenous narratives of black narratives and minorities narratives in the place of victim and it's not about that. It's also like putting them in the protagonism lead, no? Speaking to Henna Lee, it seems clear that Brazil's fervent and diverse cultural conditions makes it well-placed to be an interlocutor for the many of the world's artist communities that have, until recently, been underrepresented. Henna told me about two artists she represents in particular, the late indigenous artist Jaida Esbel and African-Brazilian Rio-based painter Maxwell Alexandri and whether she thinks the art market will finally be open to them. I hope this somehow reverberates or somehow like echoes to other art systems too. I think one thing that is quite important is like Jai, that when we started working with him, it has never been about representation because he, he verbalized like, you don't represent me, I represent myself, but we do a commercial partnership 
and you have the exclusivity to sell my works. So it was very clear about the borders and agreements. And he said, I don't come alone. So if you want to work with me, I want also to propose other artists. I think Maxwell, likewise, propositions of Jai, that Maxwell is also one of those artists that understand their agency within art and elsewhere, like in, in different kind of like ecosystems. And Maxwell, for me, is like, he's 33 years old. So he was, um, he started working with this papel pardo, we call it, in Brazil. And pardo is when, is a color that is not, it doesn't actually define anything. So according to Maxwell, um, for example, you have a birth certificate, you will have to put your, your race or your color, no? And pardo is pen for anything between white and black. Mixed. Mixed. So this is the sort of terminology yes. of, of racial categorization. Correct. But as Maxwell says, and he really like um, affirms, this is also part of a, you could read it also as a part of like whitewashing as well. That was Director General of Galleria Milan, one of Sao Paulo's most influential and successful contemporary art galleries. The next sounds of the Sao Paulo Biennale you are hearing are from the collective Frenchy Tres de Fevereiro's piece, Came Policia a Policia, or Who Polices the Police? Finally, we go back to Marcelo Palota who, with the help of a foreboding portrait of Brazil's president from 1966 by artist Ismeina Coaraci, takes us back to the subversion and spirit of artistic rebellion that was felt during the country's military dictatorship. It belongs to Ismeina Coaraci, a female artist, political one, mm-hmm. and she did that painting for the first and only Biennale of Brazilian. And the Bayern of Brasilia happens in 66, just after the, the dictator happened. So it was something that was planning before, and the, the military decided, oh, let's do it because it was planning. And, you know, and they get really, really upset because all the artists are political against them, especially this people. So it's a way so, of rebelling, re- revolt. Revolt, and also it's a smart way of revolt because if you see the painting, you didn't realize what exactly is the critics, but the critics is very underlined. It's like, you know, big hands, it's like shadow on the face, the the, the Brazilian presidential, you know, sash, sash, yes, yes. mix it up. So it's, it's very intelligent uh, uh, criticism, yeah. and they didn't know about it. From subversive portraiture to finally expressing political and social agency through art, Sao Paulo, both through its bewildering biennial and thriving commercial galleries, is showing that despite a difficult recent history, with its extraordinary diversity, Brazil can transfix the world with its artists. For Monocle in Sao Paulo, I'm David Pleasant. 
Finally, on the show, we have a highlight from the menu. This time, we sit down with beloved British chef Tom Carriage to discuss the release of his new cookbook, Bub Kitchen, the ultimate modern British food bible. Ten years ago, the first pub book, proper pub food, was like a really kind of heartfelt, it was my first book and it was this kind of connection to British food, British cooking at that point. And there was lots of, I suppose, comforting, homely, familiar dishes that felt very, very wrapped up in British seasonality and ingredients. And over the last 10 years, you're right, you say there that it's kind of that pub scene is, is blossomed is probably the best way of describing it. And what we've done and the way that it's grown is now, you know, we used to have select pubs that you would know in your area that would do nice food. Now it's almost pretty much every pub you go to, you can expect a good burger, a, you know, a very nicely made salad, something that on toast or, you know, a simple pie or just, but, but you expect it to be done pretty well. You know, things homemade, things aren't coming necessarily now straight from a freezer and dropped in a fryer. It's like, actually, there's a bit of heart and soul and passion that comes into it. But I think most importantly, the way that recipes and dishes have developed and grown is that we're very much like a magpie style nation in terms of food. We're culturally diverse, eclectically rich in backgrounds and food and continent kind of embracing styles. We, we, we are a nation of people that are experimental and inquisitive when it comes to dishes and flavours. And there's no other style restaurant in the world that will wrap themselves up in dishes and make it feel like it's completely normal to have a Korean-style barbecued mackerel followed by a Sri Lankan prawn curry and then a steamed suet pudding. You know, and we would sit there and eat those three dishes, and you might even have that on a Sunday lunchtime in a pub, and it's completely normal. But it's because it's cooked beautifully. We have chefs with skill levels that are operating in pubs now that are just, they're beyond basic. They're actually doing very, very good cookery. And they're learning dishes and techniques and skill sets that are wrapped around global cuisine. And it sits in a pub so, so nicely. So 10 years has grown from these British dishes that have been about bone marrow on toast, for example, and, you know, roasted beetroots and celebrating seasonality to now. It's not just seasonality we we specialise in in British pubs. It's not just produce that we specialise in. It's actually global cuisine. And it's a really nice way of putting it all together. But for a global audience like ours, let's take a step back and look at why the pub is such a both comforting and alluring institution to have and to be able to rely on when I look at the ways that your recipes have been described. Flavour-packed, warm-hearted, joyful for everyone. There is a sense of generosity which evokes this idea, this mental image that people have of the pub, whether it's reclining in the armchair, whether it's just finding a place that always feels welcoming to people. Why does the pub hold such a an importance and charm that is so just absolutely enveloping for people. And why did you choose to go down this route in your career as well when you got into food and then eventually chose your own path? Yeah, I mean, my background, I've worked in Michelin star restaurants pretty much my whole career and my whole life. But when it came to opening my own business, which is now nearly 19 years, 
um, it was I wanted to create somewhere where I'd like to be on my day off and on my day off I wanted to wear jeans and trainers I don't want to dress up I don't want to, but that doesn't mean to say I've got to eat food that's not of high quality you know so in case of opening the business it was like well why can't we do great food set on a three course a la carte meal start a main dessert that's got really good produce in it looked and cared for by chefs that can cook to a complete level just because it hasn't got white linen tablecloths and an extensive huge wine list there's no reason why the food can't be great so that was the first point of call of opening the hand and flowers and going this is what we're going to do and this is what i set myself up into but my relationship and i think on in general the bigger picture of great britain's relationship with pubs is that they are so interwoven into the fabric of society they're the connective tissue of so many different people's lives and places they are social meeting places they're hubs of society they are spaces where people go after work for a catch-up and a pint and what defines a pub is think it has to have beer I mean, that's first and foremost. <laughs> a pub has to have beer, right? Without beer, it's not a pub, okay? <laughs> so that's the one thing that it must have, beer. And it, it, it goes, but from there, that beer, it also then has to have a sense of familiarity and a warm sense of hospitality. And you mentioned the word generosity there. All of the best chefs, all of the best restaurateurs, all of the best publicans, all of the best operators. And I think in most businesses that are relatable to food and drink in particular, the ones that are successful aren't necessarily the ones that make the most profit margin. The ones with longevity in life are the ones that operate with a sense of generosity. They're the ones that are about making sure that people have a wonderful time when they come to visit. Our world and our jobs, they are vocational they're not something that's built in. They are careers and they're livelihoods and they're everything. But actually, the reason why we do them in the first place is because it's it's a passion and it's a love and it's a sense of, I think, connection to other human beings that, you know, that, that makes you go, you know, this is what it's all about. This is where I want to be. This is where my heart belongs. And pubs sum that up better than anything else because they're so connected throughout society. And it doesn't, you know, everybody... Everybody knows what a pub is and, you know, and they should be completely embracing from all walks of life and every member of society. It doesn't matter who you are. You walk through into the door of a pub, you should be made to feel welcome. And that's what sums up a pub. And that's why they're so important. And that's why they're so quintessentially British, that understanding of what it is. Your pub does have two Michelin stars. Two questions. One, what makes pub food Michelin star worthy but also do you still use it as a space to experiment nowadays and where do you push it forward what does a three Michelin star pub look like <laughs> <laughs> no I've absolutely no idea what a three star pub looks like I think there's 20 plus pubs now with Michelin stars and that level of cooking now I can't I've no idea really what it takes what the Michelin inspector is looking for I don't know their tick box process of what they're going for however I do we have won them we've got two stars at the hand we've got one star at the coach and we have kept them for a long time and you go all right what do they look for they look for quality led ingredients and they look for consistency and They'll look for a warmth of service, I'm sure. I know that it's always about the food, but, you know, if somebody smiles and says hello when they come through the door, that's got to be a little tick point, hasn't it? You know, <laughs> straight away. So just doing hospitality correct, sourcing wonderful produce and treating it with love and respect. And you go, actually, that, and doing it consistently again and again and again. I think the difference between two and one stars is personality. And by that, what I mean is I think there's lots of incredible, brilliant 
singular Michelin star restaurants and brilliant spaces. But a lot of it, do you, can you instantly tell which chef has cooked that each dish? I think there's a lot of um, brilliant cookery, but has it, does it now excel into the personality of those chefs? And there's 20, 25, two Michelin star spaces up and down the country. And I would argue that if you put, particularly in front of those chefs, if you put the 25 dishes a main course of 25 dishes in front of all of those chefs without knowing who it is, I could sit there and I reckon I would get 90 to 100% right of which chef cooked which dish because there is a sense of personality and ownership that comes into that style and that particular cooking. And I think that's probably the difference that goes from one to two, but I don't really know. So we operate like a two-star restaurant it's just a pub it's just the walls that are different that's all and you just go actually and with that you still have to have that warmth of connection and i think those are the points that were very i think driven from us to get to that two-star level three-star i couldn't tell you what a three-star pub looks like because there isn't one however i could tell you what a three-star restaurant looks like and they are exceptional they are world-class cuisine how do you transfer that into a pub i wouldn't have the first clue without it then suddenly becoming slightly intimidating to people pubs are about embracing and one of the biggest thing that i love about our pub at the hand of flowers is many people come to us and they say it's the first experience of mission star dining they've ever had and it's a two-star and they've come to us because they know it's a pub so they know they can go actually it will feel quite comfortable and they get it and if that leads them in, on to go and eat in another two-star restaurants one-star restaurants and going because it's they realize that actually there's nothing to be intimidated about. It's an amazing space. And, you know, the professionalism of the staff, no matter whether it's one star, two star, three star, anywhere, should be about making people feel comfortable. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening. <laughs>